Are you guys ready to think today? No, then this is not the passage for you. All right, here we go, here we go. Trevor Miller had us pastors read a book last year called Strength Finders, and it helped us to understand a little bit about ourselves. One thing it said about me is it said, I think contextually. That means I want to figure out what happened in the past so I can know why we are where we are, both in understanding and experience. And today, I, um, I, want, I think we really need to understand the context of a verse we're going to read into our culture, because sometimes the way it's heard and understood has a lot to do with the way that we interpret culture. And so I am going to go back 250 years. This is where I'm going to begin. 250 years ago, the time in both America and Europe was a time of revolution. You could say that it was a time when people were wanting to change established systems. So you have the American Revolution, the War of Independence. You have the French Revolution, the fight for liberty, equality, and fraternity. And also, back then, in, 19, in 1792, women wanted in on the freedom. There was a writer by the name of Mary Wollstonecraft who, who wrote an essay that in feminist circles, they believe, is really the beginning when women started thinking about their freedom. The title of her essay is A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And in it, she proposed the idea that women were the natural and intellectual equals of men, and they deserved equal treatment and opportunities. So that started a whole bunch of what I would say books being written in that vein. In 1860, many of, many of you have probably heard the book Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. It was one of the first popular novels that was intended to bring the reader into the world in the minds of women. It is described as a vivid portrayal of the lives of bold, loving, and unconventional women. And Alcott's aim was to show how women, like men, had aspirations could pursue love relationships, and even develop a passion towards creating art and having their own career. In 1929, a writer by the, by the name of Virginia Woolf penned a personal grievance she had towards the male-dominated writing world of that time. She wrote a book called A Room of One's Own. She argued that there was a vast systemic education and economic failure that stifled women and their progress. She's quoted as saying, there is no gate, no lock, no bolt that you can set upon the freedom of my female mind. 1963 came to American pop culture with a book written by feminist advocate Betty Friedan called The Feminist Mystique. It is known as a clarion call for all women across America to see the role of wife and mother as a form of modern-day slavery. She writes, who knows what women can be when they are finally set free to become themselves, meaning set free from the domestic life. She continues, the feminist revolution has to be fought because women quite simply will be stopped at a state of evolution far short of their human capacity. Seven years later, a book in 1970, which is, was dubbed Dynamic and Divisive, 
was written called The Female Eunuch. In it, the writer called out their traditional nuclear family as the primary tool of female oppression. And the book proposed that sexual liberation was essential for women to gain freedom from the patriarchy, from the tyranny of men. And then, in 1973, a watershed event occurred. This, the battle of the sexes. It took place in the Houston Astrodome. It was a winner-take-all match. Cash prize was of $100,000 between 55-year-old Bobby Riggs and 29-year-old, does anybody know her name? Bill, why do women know that so quick? I mean, almost in a Billie Jean King, doggone it. That's right, Billie Jean King. The match was viewed by 50 million Americans and 90 million people worldwide. Billie Jean won in three sets. And many social commentators say this was the event that brought it to the forefront in American life. Brought what? The battle of the sexes. Patriarchy versus feminism. Old world versus new. In 1991, Hollywood joined in with a huge blockbuster entitled Thelma and Louise. The movie was a critical and commercial success, receiving six Academy Awards and winning one for Best Original Screenplay. The Academy Awards were just nominations, but one for Best Original Screenplay. There's a story of two women, a meek housewife, and a single hard-edged waitress who celebrated their, their liberation on the roads of America's highways. Finally, as one movie critic writes, women get the leading role in adventure, murder, and sexual liberation, culminating in having mastery over their own lives as they drive off the cliff, ending the story on their own terms. So now for the last 30 years, the war for equality has gotten only hotter. Disagreement between the two sexes has been ramped up to such a degree that on a cultural, political, domestic level, there seems to be no way to come to a truce. No way. Men, for the most part, have been solidly cast as a dangerous, misogynistic animal, only seeing women as servants and objects for their personal gratification. And so as a result, women are told that they need to be ready to fight, to be fierce. And you must be, they say, if you want to stop the oppression and join in the struggle for liberation. Hence, hashtag, me too. So, into this context, we open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You could open yours up to the same chapter. This is going to be like gasoline thrown on this fire. It, it is hot. In our current culture, this is not an appreciated nor taught passage because of this war. But I believe if you read it rightly, if you really take a look at this passage, it's meant more than anything to bring the sexes together. So instead of using the Bible to fight for feminism and against patriarchy, 
I find that this is a call for mutual worship. To worship the living God who made us both. The one who created this whole thing called marriage. And when we do, it brings Him glory. And so the title for this is, Paul is calling us to cease fire. And let's worship together. So if you can stand, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You may be seated. And I'll see you later. <laughs> okay, this will be fun. This will be fun. So let's begin just kind of understanding what's happening. In 1 Corinthians, we come to three, what I'd call three sections that Paul is going to write about that are instructions for corporate worship. Meaning when we get together in a public way in a body, he's going to talk about keeping order. So you have in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, if you look chapter 11, verse 2, he says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered to you. So he's saying, keep the traditions. What traditions? The traditions on the first day of the week, breaking bread and worshiping, which would be Sunday. And he commends them because he passed on this tradition and they're continuing on. If you go to 1440, this is the other, this is the other bookend to this section. It kind of ends the section. And if you note, it's an exhortation. It says, all things, meaning all things within the corporate worship venue, should be done decently and in order. So he's calling for order in three areas. Last week we talked about how there was disorder at the Lord's table and how people would come and eat before everybody else. And he said, don't do that. Don't mistreat the Lord's table. We talked about that last week. Next week, Pastor Trevor is going to talk about gifts and the use of gifts. 
at how some people would use their gifts and it would cause all kind of chaos. And now he's going to talk about here the use of head coverings and how head coverings is actually causing a problem and their use of it or non-use of it. And so specifically, we're going to deal with verses 1 through 16 on what is going on with head coverings. So on head coverings. And we're going to answer four questions. Because these are the questions that lie behind the issue. And the first one is this. What is going on? Really, what's the real problem? Because truthfully, if somebody wrote about the church of today and they read what's going on in the church 200 years from now or even 1,000, they'd say, what's this mask business? Do we have to wear masks? They don't understand the contention of what's going on right now. And so we're going to talk about that. Second question, can women worship with men? Because some people actually use this passage to separate men from women in worship. Third question will be, what is headship? And that's the question. What does that mean? And then the fourth one is, is this 1 through 16 a cultural issue or is it a timeless absolute? Meaning, should we be doing this? And if not, are we sinning? So those are the questions. So the first question is, what's the problem? What is going on? And I just want to say, from the onset, truthfully, a disclaimer from almost every writer, we really don't know, really, what was going on. We can only speculate. Again, like the mask thing. People will have no idea, even in 10 years, what really was going on and how fierce it is. How some people who don't wear masks are, I want my freedom, you can't tell me what to do. How some people who wear masks, I just want to take care of everybody. They don't understand the tension. And I'm not sure we understand the tension of head coverings as it was back in the Corinthian day. But we can say a few things about it. Number one, we can say more than likely, more than likely, The issue was that some women were seeking independence from their husbands and not respecting proper leadership in church. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. Like there's this this need to show their independence. So the idea is that when it comes to worship, Paul is saying everyone needs to be careful that they're not just selfishly doing things their own way, rashly exercising their rights. Who cares if it causes misunderstanding? It's my right. There's this independent streak he's kind of addressing. So the second thing we can say about the problem is the big problem was when they were practicing their independence, it was bringing shame to the husband. Look at verse 4 and 6. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and then so, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head or dishonors her husband. That's the idea. And in verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, disgraceful, bringing shame, for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So the independence that was being exercised 
somehow was causing her husband to feel shame, embarrassment, disrespect, dishonor. What was being done? There's three possibilities. The first one's the traditional view. The traditional view is the idea that in the Corinthian culture, married women would wear either a veil, a shawl, or some kind of head covering to show that they were with a man, that they were married. Because there's a lot of temple prostitution going on, and prostitutes usually would have their heads uncovered, ornamented, trying to solicit. Or there was adulterous women, and one of the things they do to adulterous women is shave their heads as a sign of disgrace. So a woman with a head covering was a sign of good standing in a marriage relationship and respect. That's the traditional view. That's where most scholars have, for the centuries, leaned on. Some scholars will say the idea of covering your head has the idea of your hair is worn, it has something to do with hair, but it's worn respectfully, almost like up in a bun. The disrespectful wearing of the hair is letting it flow down. And I don't know about that one. I didn't read too many on that, but that is a possibility. Option three has been taken up a lot more in the last 20 years. I don't know if it's because of what is happening with women's liberation or what, but I do I do think it has a lot of credence. Option three is this idea. We talked about it a little bit in chapter seven, that there were some women in the Corinthian church that felt they have reached a new plane of spirituality, like the angels. And angels aren't given to marriage. And so they'd cut their hair almost as a way to show there is no gender distinction. I am free and independent on my own in the spirit. So they'd cut their hair in a rather non-binary way to show their freedom in Christ. And they don't need male leadership anymore, so many of them were married, but they don't want to be married anymore. There's a strong possibility of that. I tend to take the traditional view, but the other ones do more reading on it because there's a lot written on this. Next question can women worship with men? So he's going to use these two statements of prayer and prophecy. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, every man who prays, prayer is human communication with God. Human being to God. It's a vertical re correspondence. Every man who prays or prophesies, prophecy is human being to human being. Speaking either encouragement and then Corinthian times some prophetic utterances, but it's human being talk to human being talk. So verse 4 is assuming men are doing it. The question is, are women allowed to do it? And they should be able to do it, should they be able to do it with men? Well, verse 5 says, every right wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It has nothing to do with her praying or prophesying that's the shameful thing. It's the way in which she's doing it. Same thing with verse 15, if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory for his, wait, I'm sorry, verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her hair uncovered? It's not, is it proper for a wife to pray to God? It's in the me manner in which she's doing it. So, should a woman be allowed to participate in corporate worship? Absolutely. That's the point. He's assuming they are. Yes. Absolutely. The issue is, if they don't intentionally do it to dishonor their husbands or shame their husbands or show 
independence from leadership. That's the point. So yes, women are allowed to worship with men. There is some question because it seems to be addressing only women. Well, what about men? Paul does say the issue is more marriage and head coverings, but he does talk about in verse um, 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? So some people have actually taken this verse to say men who get their hair over their ears or longer than their collars is sinning. They shouldn't have long lamb chops down the chin and be careful about beards because it's uncomely. You know, there's a question about that. Is it sinful for men to have long hair? And if it is, and did you know Paul had long hair? Chapter 18 of Acts, verse 18, it said he finally cut it after a vow. John the Baptist had long hair. So did Samson. And if long hair is sin, then why would they commend Absalom on his long locks? He'd cut it off and they'd say it weighs so much. He had long, beautiful hair. Most scholars would say this issue here in verse 13 really is about men would ornament their hair almost in a, is really more in a homosexual, perverse way, is the whole idea, to attract. That's the idea. One person said, well, what about, why, why don't men, is it wrong for men to wear hats? It sure seems like Jews wear veils. And part of it is, you'll see, verse 7, the idea is that man is the glory of God and he shouldn't hide his glory. But it became a custom where you don't wear hats in church. How dare you wear a baseball cap? It's dishonoring to God. It's more of a cultural thing. So, yeah, um, prayer and prophecy, yes, women can worship with men. So here's the big question. What is headship? So verse 3 is where the battle rages more than anything else. Verse 3, in the last 20 years, 30 to 40 some books have been written on verse 3. And here's what verse 3 says. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what does that mean? Well, it's a metaphor. Like a body, my head controls my body. It's, you could say it's on top, it's in charge, some people will say. But this really doesn't say much. Let's get more specific. So what scholars have done, they've looked up the word head in the New Testament. They have looked at classical Greek written at that time, to say what does and how has that word been used. And it's used in two ways. It's in, used in two ways. But before we get to that, I just want you to notice, Paul is going to use this word in reference to the way we have been created, the created order. Look at verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So he's saying my teaching is basically coming from the creative order. Adam and Eve was made out of Adam's side with the rib. So he's saying 
whatever the answer is, it's for it's the way God designed it. It's his design. And every time God makes a design in Genesis, he said it was good. It's harmonious. It's for shalom. So what are the two words? Well, the first word for head has been interpreted as authority. The idea that man is the leader, the head of the home, the head of the wife, he's in charge. You could say we get this from verse 9 and 10. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, as this heeds the authority. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority. See, the word authority. On her head because of the angels. But verse 10 is a crazy verse. Actually, it reads in the Greek, a woman has authority and should show it on her head for the angels. What does that mean? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm telling, I could give you 20 different answers. One is that, you know, there's some angels that are looking for women. You know, it says in Genesis 6, and so you better put a veil on a head so that angel can't see you. You know, it's kind of weird rendition. Some are that it shows authority to the angels that this church is respectful and it's giving honor to God, so therefore then the angels will give honor to God and show their proper place. I don't know what verse 10 means. I really don't. But some people will use the word authority. The other word is source, from, derived from, or Adam was the origin and the wife came from in the same way we came from God. And they will use verse 8 and 11 and 12. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things, however, are from God. So source of. Before we get into what are the implications of these two words, because they can be massive, what are the implications Gordon Fee warns us about this. A poor reading of the text by men has often led to terribly unfortunate marriage relationships that exemplify issues of power rather than primary biblical concern, which is that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So he's saying before we jump to some implications of these words. Husbands, are you dying for your wife? Because if you are, these two words will be a whole lot easier to ingest. So one way to take it is authority. What are the implications of authority? Well, authority has the idea of power, hierarchy, and some scholars will say, well, that means man has to be in charge, and if man has to be in charge, Paul is writing this, to get those independent women in submission. Settle down, women. Do what we say. That's, that's truthfully how a lot of churches interpret this. How women can't do anything until men tell them they can. That's a huge implication. But there is a point in time when somebody does have to decide what are we going to do and when are we going to do it. And headship has that idea to some degree. So what was the problem then if it's an issue of authority? Well, probably open rebellion. They didn't, do, they didn't want to do what their men wanted to do. So we need to, we need to address that issue. So we need to curb the women's independence. So in some ways, 
the way that some people over the years has taken authority, the word authority, has actually ratcheted up the battle between the sexes. And I dare say a misuse of this word authority has caused the feminist rise. So what are some of the implications of source? The idea is it's of origin. And so man, out of man, he was lonely, remember, in the garden? And God brought a suitable helper to complete him. So when a woman is practicing independence, she's ruining the image of God. Because she need, there needs to be, when they're together, they're, they together are the image of God. They are completing oneness. So that independence is severing that image. That's some of the implications. So in some ways, you could say when a woman is using her independence, she is destroying that image that God has beautifully given in the creative order between man and woman. Whatever, whichever one you want, the truth is God has made us for each other. We aren't independent. There is an idea that we, are, we need each other. And we need to be unified. Not a power struggle. It's a beautiful thing. That's what really verse 12 is about. All things are from God. So, is this women wearing head coverings meant to be cultural or is it an absolute teaching? Meaning, if we don't do it, we're sinning as a church. How serious should we take this passage? Some had said, that it has no longer has any bearing on us whatsoever, especially since Galatians 3.28's been written, that men, women, slaves, free, we're all one in Christ, we're the same in Christ, so all distinctions are done. Some people think the problem with our culture is we no longer teach authority. That's why our, that's why our culture has gone, uh, you know what, in a handbasket. So is it cultural or is it absolute? Well, first thing, look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? One scholar said he's kind of saying this. You decide as a church. You get together and you decide what is best. Use your common sense. What is proper in your circumstance? What brings glory and unity to the body? What communicates good order and respect where all parties feel love, honored, and respected? Judge for yourselves. Use your God-given common sense. Look at verse 14. Does not nature itself teach that you are a man, that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given for a covering. So, so this is a rhetorical appeal to say, look at the way nature is, or look at the way things are. Doesn't it seem like there is a distinction in roles and, you know, women should look different than men and behave differently than men? And even if you ask behavioral psychologists, that's why we have hairstylists because more women would rather go to a hairstylist than men. It's just the way it is. Look at nature. Now look at verse 16. If anyone is inclined to argue on this point or to be contentious, if you want to argue about this, Paul's saying, we as the churches, we really have no other practice. So if you want to argue about it, this is what we have landed on. This is what we've decided. But compare this language with verse 
27 of the same chapter when it comes to the Lord's table. Look at Paul's language when they disrespect the Lord's table. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. His language is a little more harsh on disrespecting the Lord's table as compared to disrespecting head coverings. So I'd say it like this. Comparatively speaking, to me, head coverings is not as big an issue in comparative language. So, let's get, come to some conclusions. How do we wrap up? I'd say, number one, clearly, men and women are meant to worship together in unity. Be at peace, find joy in the Lord together. So let's stop the war and let's complete the image. Let's do everything properly. Second thing I'd say this is God determines designs of the man, the male and female relationship. Man did come first and women came to be to complement. So you could see both authority and source both have biblical implications, especially source in Ephesians 5 where men are not just to die for the wife, but to care for her, to clean her with the word of God, take care of the one God gave him. Verse 3, or the third point, is order is more desirable within the body than your independence. We live in a culture that has a strange way of exalting the small percentage of people who feel they don't get to do what they want to do. I should have the right to do what I want. And if I don't get to do what I want in the church, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. Well, really, the majority of people who come to church come to learn and worship with the full body of Christ so we all together can give Him glory. It's about Him. Not the expression of our freedom and rights. Fourth thing I'd say is one thing is for sure in this passage, gender differences are real. There is a man and there is a woman, and they are different. They are different. There's a definite design in God's creative order. And then the fifth thing I'd say is some things matter more. And I personally would put head coverings very low on the list as compared to how we properly celebrate the Lord's table, how we exercise gifts, but more importantly, what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 13 is how we love one another. I think that's the most important thing. So in closing, when it comes to fighting any cultural battle, specifically in our culture, I have found personally, and I'm a man personally, I have found the first people who come to my corner is first my wife, secondly my daughters, my mom is right there with me, and my four sisters, or my three sisters, my one sister, she would be with me if she's more coherent, and then the church. Notice anything about the first group of people? They're all women. And I'm a man. What are we doing getting along, seeing things eye to eye? How dare? If you are a Christian, <laughs> unity matters more than being a man or a woman. In fact, when you are in Christ, you will find we have so much more in common than the differences we have. Or you could even put it like this. Because we are in Christ, we are on the same team. We are on the same team. 
But I'll tell you what, to have teamwork matter, I would just say, men, it really should begin with you. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Everything else will fall into place.